G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to our wrap-up show for Series 11 of Doctor Who. Dave, how are you? Not too bad, Rob. And that's right, this is the episode where we get to look back a little bit more calmly at the episodes. In previous reviews, they really have been hot takes, sometimes literally 10 minutes from turning off the episode to turning on the microphone. And this is the one where we get to look back, reflect, look at trends, change our scores a bit in hindsight, and also hear from uh, you, the listeners. Absolutely. These are the episodes I look forward to uh, each season because it, it just wraps everything up, and that's a nice thing. It is. So shall I kick off with a, perhaps a general comment then, Rob? Oh, please do. So for me, this season, looking back, and, and this isn't a new thought, but it is a very middling sort of season. I have enjoyed large parts of it. I've not enjoyed some of it, but once again, there've been no classics. There are four episodes that I think are really good. I've really enjoyed. And I've said to other people who've been a bit iffy about this season, no, no, go watch those four. They're, they're actually quite good. There are three that I think are kind of bad, but they're not in the same depths of a fear her or a let's kill Hitler or a death in heaven or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. But the other thing we're missing as well, which I think makes this a very flat, if you like, season is something like A Love and Monsters that really divides Phantom and can take people in different ways. I mean, the frog episode maybe is that a little bit, but mm. it's been very safe. It's it's not bad. I've enjoyed it, as I've said, but it is lacking that classic. Where's the Dalek? Where's the empty child? The blink? Mm-hmm. The listen? It, World Enough in Time? Yeah. Uh, those sort of episodes, they, they weren't here. So it's missing the extremes at each end. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because for me, going into this, I was very, very excited. I I looked forward to seeing Jodie Whittaker make her take on the Doctor. I was looking forward to Chibnall taking over the series. You know, there was a lot of pushback on him saying, oh, look, he can't write for nuts. And I'm like, well, come on. You know, he he wrote Broadchurch. And look, he he wrote things like Countryside for for Torchwood that were just fantastic. He can write when he wants to. And and by God, he's, he's been given his fantasy show here. He'll do great. And unfortunately, I sit here at the end of it thinking, well, the series was kind of mediocre. You know, it's not like the worst thing that ever happened, but gosh, I'm I'm a wee bit disappointed by it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm disappointed as well because I, as long-term listeners to the podcast will know, I really enjoyed Series 10. I, I thought it was the best series we'd had of the new series since the first season with Eccleston. I thought it hit some really big highs. It was fun all the way through. I, I did think that Moffat had just sort of pulled back a bit from some of his more moffity stuff and was mm-hmm. just giving us those those good adventures in space and time. And I think that what Chibnall was trying to do here is give us good adventures in space and time. And I do appreciate that. And where it's worked, it has worked well, and I've liked it. But it has just been flat. Yeah. And I think as we go through the episodes now and sort of give our new uh, reappraised scores, we might uh, sort of tap into that a bit. And certainly when we get talking about the series as a whole, I know we will talk more about that. Absolutely. So do you maybe want to kick us off then with The Woman Who Fell to Earth? Yes, The Woman Who Fell Down, directed by Jamie (laughs) Childs uh, and written by Chris Chibnall. This had a consolidated viewership of 10.96 million, the most watched Doctor Who episode ever. But of course, they count them different to how they counted them in the past. So, you know, apples and oranges, folks. Um, But putting that aside... Dave, this didn't rock my world. Um, I don't expect debut stories to actually rock my world, especially ones that are rebooting the series and introducing all new characters and everything's new. So I cut it a fair amount of slack at the time in multiple areas. Looking back on it now, I think it's a charitable 6 out of 10 for me. 
For me, it was a very serviceable and very competent opener to the season. It actually did introduce the new TARDIS team very effectively. There were some lovely scenes. There were some really good moments in there, but it was very straightforward, very basic. It did its job well. I'm also giving it a 6 out of 10. I will snap on that. So the next episode was The Ghost Monument, directed by Mark Tonderai and written again by Chris Chibnall. Look, I'm very fond of this episode. I thought it looked good. It was a nice, simple adventure. Mm -hmm. I agree, looking back, it was very insubstantial. There's not a lot to sort of... uh, There wasn't a lot of meat on it. But I I enjoyed it as a simple episode, a nice uh, second episode of the season. I gave it a six and a half. Okay, uh, Consolidated's on this were 9 million on the nose, so a drop of almost 2 million viewers from the first one. Um, I found it, you know, when it was a direct follow-on from the previous episode, I thought that was exciting. I thought there were some good visuals, good location filming in particular out in South Africa. But the whole thing felt really small and non-epic when the quest, I mean, there were characters in the story who had their own quest, but the TARDIS crew had the quest of finding the TARDIS. That prize should have felt massive when they got to it, but it all felt a bit small and it just didn't gel for me. So probably another 6 out of 10 for me. Okay, I was a little bit more generous, but only by half a mark. A wee bit, yeah. Moving on to Rosa, also directed by Mark Tonderai and written by Mallory Blackman and Chris Chibnall. He must have made some tweaks to the script or something. Um, 8.41 million here, so another drop of about 600,000 people. This one, I think, Dave, made us sit up and take notice. To me, this was more like what Doctor Who could be, and I felt very warm towards this. I think the biggest downside was the villain, who wasn't much chop, but generally, this was very good. And three episodes in, I thought, aha, maybe the series has found its groove. Eight out of ten. Yeah, this is the first of the episodes I really enjoyed. Uh, It's not in my top two for the series, but it was a good one. It told a nice story with good characters and nice ideas very well. I I did think it maybe pulled a couple of punches when I look at what other episodes in this series did. It was very, I won't say safe, because the topic wasn't safe, but it was straightforward. Uh, For that reason, I'm giving it an 8 out of 10. Oh, snap again. Which brings us to the episode that I have dubbed Spiders in an Empty Hotel, (laughs) more correctly known, of course, as Arachnids in the UK, directed by Sally Apremium and written by Chris Chibnall. This, for me, was one of two duds. Not Mm. an offensively bad episode, but just dull. The characters weren't engaging. The plot wasn't that interesting. Very little really happened. At the end of the day, as I said in our hot take review, if you're promising me arachnids in the UK and you're giving me a few spiders doing not a lot around an empty hotel, that's dull and that's disappointing. I've got to give this one, looking back, only a four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, Consolidated's on this 8.22, so only a drop of about 200,000 people this time around. But Dave, this was just rubbish. I mean, this was my low point of the series, period. How many issues do I have with it? Um, Heaps. Uh, The the Trump light guy, the spiders that don't feel like they were threatening much at all, the very poor ending. It was just awful. And snap again, four out of ten. Which takes us on, of course, to the Saranga Conundrum, directed by Jennifer Perot, written by Chris Chibnall. Uh, Consolidated's of 7.76 million, so a drop of uh, a lazy half a million there again. Um, this was panned by a lot of podcasts and fans alike, uh, Dave, who seemed to think it was worse than Arachnids. And sure, it wasn't great and had heaps of exposition and was generally very average, but I thought it was better than Arachnids, so I've got to throw a 5 out of 10 at it. I'm going to say it's as bad as Arachnids. I think in hindsight, I'm giving them both a four. 
it had some nice opening, it had some nice visuals, but in the end, it was again just dull. It was lots of people standing around in court in corridors talking at each other uh, with a villain who was ultimately phenomenally inconsequential. I thought it was dull once again. It's another four for me. And it's a real shame, looking back at this series, that I think what were the two low episodes for both of us mm. were back-to-back. And that, that, that really made the series sort of feel like it was really dragging at that critical point, episodes four or five. That's a real shame. And straight after Rosa, too. Yeah, yeah. It really started to make it look as though Rosa was the exception rather than the rule. Mm-hmm. Although it did pick up a lot in the second half of the series. It did. Which takes us to Demons of the Punjab, one of my two favourites from the season, directed by Jamie Childs and written by Vinay Patel. I'm giving this an eight and a half. I look back at this one very fondly. Again, it looked good. The characters here particularly were well done, very well acted. The story gripped me a bit more than I was expecting it to. Some of the emotional set pieces were very good, Graham in particular. Uh, Look, not quite a classic, a little bit too... Uh, insubstantial is too strong a word, but not having quite the depth that needed to be an instant classic, but one of the better two of the series, eight and a half, as I say. Absolutely. And Consolidated's here, 7.48 million, so a drop of uh, just under 300,000. Another historical setting, Dave, and another winner, I think. You know, I think we really started to note here on the podcast that the episodes that were written by anyone who wasn't Chibnall and going back in history were generally more interesting to us. And and so it was here. I mean, there's some lovely stuff going on here. It's still not a killer ep. It's still not one of those episodes I watch and they think, oh my God, what have I seen? I can't wait to rewatch that. But I'd throw an eight out of 10 at it myself. Okay, fair enough. Hmm. Which takes us to Kablam, directed by Jennifer Perot, again with Pete McTie, consolidated of 7.46 million, so a very tiny drop from the week before. I thought this was a fun, enjoyable romp, Dave, and it felt like it was written by someone who knows their Doctor Who and who likes Doctor Who, and I liked it then, I still like it now. Um, You know, it's another one, though, that got panned a bit more than I thought it would. I thought this felt like a good average ep the kind of thing i'd like to see most weeks in the series seven out of ten in our hot take review of kablam exclamation mark i gave this a (laughs) nine and looking back i think that's half point too generous i'm going to give it an 8.5 equal with demons of the punjab Mm -hmm. as you said rob it was a good fun space adventure i thought that there were some nice tense moments which were very rare in this series once again like punjab the characters were good the acting was good Um, It used the TARDIS crew probably the best of any episode of this season Mm. and the most evenly of any episode of this season. And again, it was interesting that these two were back-to-back in the season. This was a real high point, Demons of the Punjab and Kablam, both 8.5s. Yeah, very good. The next episode was another that I enjoyed, the Witchfinders Persuivant. Sorry, sorry, (laughs) just just the Witchfinders, directed by Sally Apremium and written on this occasion by Joy Wilkinson. This, to me, was very enjoyable to watch, particularly Alan Cumming. I think he's had a lot of praise from a lot of fans around the place, and and justifiably so. Uh, Again, it was fun to watch. There was a lot of good stuff going on with the historical. It falls a bit behind the other historicals for the kind of silly and annoying, badly thought-out, cliched mud-monster thing Mm. at the end, which I didn't think was a good resolution. And for that reason, I'm giving it a 7.5. It's just outside those uh, top three, but it is in the top four. Okay. Consolidated for the Witchfinders of 7.21 million, so about 200,000 down from the week before. 
Dave, again, we were back in history, but probably not to the same success as the other two for me. It was still pretty good. Although, as you say, the monsters and, and the effects for me in particular were a bit rubbish. Like Kablam, though, this felt like a good average ep. If I was sitting there at the start of the series hoping that episodes would be like this week to week, I think that would make me happy. So again, like Kablam, 7 out of 10 for me. Okay, okay, fair enough. We're not too far off each other on these ones. I don't think so. Which then took us to It Takes You Away, directed by Jamie Childs, written by Ed Heim. Consolidators of 6.42 million, so a big drop there of about 800,000 from the week before. Crikey. But Dave, I really, really enjoyed this episode. I, I can't actually rate it higher than anything else in the series, but it's right up there with them. It just felt good i i really enjoyed the the great ideas you know okay sure the frog was poorly executed in the way it looked but not in the concept the concept of a universe that wants to be friends and is trying to attract people to be friends with it my god that's imagination that's doctor who that's fun you know so it's an eight out of ten for me it was it was really good i thought i was slightly less taken with it takes you away than you were rob I like a lot of the pieces of this. I thought that that opening third, which I said at the time, very M. Night Shyamalan, you know, the village signs, that was really effective. I would have liked it to carry on like that. Uh, the second or, or, the, or the middle bit was kind of interesting and had some really chilling stuff in there and lots of praise for the moths. I, I like the ending. I think it's a clever idea. I think it's a good idea. It's a Doctor Who idea. It is let down a bit by the realisation of the frog. Um, and it does just not quite feel as though it's part of the same episode. So overall, there's a lot of good stuff, but I did feel it was less than the sum of its parts. And that's why I have to just give it a seven. Oh, that's very fair. And the final episode of the series, the Battle of Ranscore of Colos, and I'm glad I've got that written down. We'll talk about that in a moment. <laughs> yes. Uh, directed by Jamie Childs, written as the final episode by Chris Chibnall. I was very down on this when we did our hot take review, and looking back, I I'm, I'm really feel that my issues with it then were justified. Tim Shaw is not that interesting a villain, and I wasn't that excited to see him back. It wasn't helped by the fact that his role in the episode was to give very long exposition speeches in an almost unintelligible manner, whilst Jody sort of sat there and didn't really react, and... You know, nice stuff with Graham and, and Ryan, some nice visuals, but overall just dull and not really well thought out and a bit of a mess. Um, I'm not judging this as a Moffat or RTD-style finale. I just want it to be a good last episode of the season. But if you're going to bring back a villain and make it a bit of a thing, it's got to be an interesting villain. And yeah. overall, look, it's not in the bottom two. It's not a four, but I do have to give it a five. Yeah, look, that's quite fair. And I don't have consolidated ratings on this. I do, though, have the overnights, which were 5.32 million. So once we consolidate that, it may end up just under 6 million, perhaps. But we'll wait to see. It's probably another couple of days before they'll come out from the time of recording. Dave, for me, this was just disappointing. It was a letdown. Like you, I wasn't expecting an all-singing, all-dancing finale. But the way this just plodded along. And, yeah, Chris was back on writing duties. Ugh, it was like... <laughs> Oh, everything's going wrong at the end of the series. You know, sure, there were some good ideas, but it just didn't say a whole lot to me. It could have been so much more. I feel that I'm probably even giving it a bit more than I should, but, you know, it was it was a 6 out of 10 for me. The, the series had gone down again from, you know, some of the 8s I've been giving it in more recent episodes. Yeah, this is very 
typical, I think, of the series, or, or, or representative of the series, in that a lot of the ingredients actually were kind of right. It just didn't all come together in a really effective way. Um, and I want to make another point about this one, Rob, that I did, failed to make last week, and that is just to talk about this title, Battle of Ranskor Avkolos. Mm. Now, if I didn't have that written down in front of me in our show notes, in a running order, I wouldn't have remembered what that was. And football coaches always say to their players, if you're going to go out there and wear fluorescent yellow or fluorescent pink boots, <laughs> you've got to back it up with a good game. Yep. And my view is if you're going to go out and call yourself the battle of some strange alien world, you've got to be the Caves of Androzani. Yeah. And this wasn't the Caves of Androzani. Well, I don't think there'd even been a battle. I mean, there were these crashed ships, but they'd gone there one at a time with maybe three or four people on them. You know, I don't think it had even been a battle, Dave. No, exactly as there wasn't a conundrum in the Waitangi conundrum. And <laughs> yeah. nothing actually takes anybody away in It Takes You Away. Well, no, no. The girl thought there might be a monster, but there wasn't even a monster. Yeah, I get you. Yeah, and even, as I said, Arachnids in the UK was really just in, you know, one small block of one city. So, a <laughs> little bit of our work needed on titles, I think, next season, Mr Chibnall. Yeah, I think so. Look, Dave, should we work out what our averages are then? We've just given all these scores. Um, I know I've done the math here. Have you done your math? I've done my maths, and the answer I got was 6.5, which I think is very fair and very representative of the season. <laughs> Well, you won't believe this, but snap, folks at home, we don't collaborate on these scores at all, but we, we've got the same here, Dave, six and a half out of ten for me too. Oh, wow. And do you feel that's fair and representative? I do, because this series has felt average. You know, if this was a school report, it would be a C, maybe even a C minus. It's not a disaster, but it's not great either. You know, it's, it's possibly the worst of New Who. They've there have been no genius episodes, like we said. You know, no Blink, no Dalek, no Heaven Sent, no Doctor's Wife. You know, nothing that made you stop and go, oh, wow, that was very special. We went close. You know, at the end of Rosa, it was like, oh, that was very good. That's what Doctor Who can do. Hats off. But it still wasn't a Blink. It still wasn't a Dalek, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think an average for this series, 6.5 out of 10, yeah, I think that's bang on, actually. Yeah, this... You know, you said there, Rob, that this was the worst of the new series. Um, I don't know about that. I mean, I compare this to season five, which was Moffat's first season, which did have a bit of a feel of him not quite sure what he wanted to do and maybe turning the ship a bit from RTD and, you know, some nice fun episodes in there. Probably a couple of my favourite Matt Smiths are in there, in fact. But overall, just a bit of a, a flat series. That's how this one feels. Um, it's very different to something like a series six, which I, I can't stand. I don't like. It's by far my least favourite of the series. But I respect that season six is doing some very deliberate choices. And if you like it, it's doing it very, very well. It's it's trying to be a thing and being that thing. This is just being a bit flat. Yeah, look, I, I can cop that, uh, particularly when it comes to Smithy. I know you, you, you had a bit of a rough start with Smithy. Although when... I had a rough three years with Smithy, let's be honest. <laughs> but, you know, when I look at Smithy's first season, Smithy's first season has Vincent and the Doctor in it. At the end of Vincent and the Doctor, that's one of those episodes where I'm like, good God, that was amazing. Yeah, yeah. Y you know, and, and even The Lodger for me, I know The Lodger is a bit, um, you know, hit and miss with people, but that's a fun Gareth Roberts script. I really, really enjoyed that in a way that I didn't enjoy anything in this series. So f for me, Series 5 still has a, at least a couple of standouts. It also has Amy's Choice, which I know isn't most people's cup of tea, but I adore 
as well. So uh, I'm a little more forgiving when it comes to Series 5. But we're not talking about Series 5, I know. No, it's going to be interesting how this series ends up in a couple of years' time. I can see it not being one that I'm desperate to go back to on a regular basis, but perhaps ending up something like a Season 4, which is one that I don't think is brilliant. It's got some really good episodes in it, but it's a very easy season to just put on on a quiet Sunday afternoon and watch. I could, for example, imagine myself putting on the three historicals from this one on a quiet, wet Sunday afternoon or a quiet evening and just watching them and enjoying them and not having to think too much. That's a compliment. Um, It's not the best compliment, though. No, and look, I'll probably end up doing that one day in the future. But right now, I think, would I like to rewatch any of these? And I honestly don't have the urge. Even thinking ahead to the future and what a future me might think, I, I don't have the urge. I know it might happen, but gosh, you know, so I'm sort of damning it a bit when I say that. So let's let's keep going down this path and talking more generally about the mm. series. One thing that I've noticed is that, first of all, the ratings for this series have been up. Um, as you pointed out, Rob, there has been a drop-off. But that does happen with most series as they go on, although usually they pick up a bit at the end or there's a bit more spike. This this trend was quite interesting. But there has been a considerable increase in the ratings compared to Peter Capaldi's last couple of years. And for a television series to do that in its 11th series and indeed its 13th year is something we have to respect. It has been moved to Sunday night, something that we were talking about way before it was cool to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that has been a success. Jodie Whittaker's casting has been a success. It has found an audience. But what's interesting is I, I don't just listen to podcasts by fans of our sort of vintage who grew up watching the classic series. I've also made a point to go out there and follow on social media, be it YouTube or Twitter or the like, Younger fans, you know, 18, sort of 22, 25-ish, who have clearly grown up with the new series and see what their reaction is. And their reaction's actually been very similar. And what I think it is, is that fans of Doctor Who, in a very specific way, in that sort of sci-fi fantasy sort of element, I think have found this a very dull series. Whereas if you just want to be entertained for an hour on a Sunday evening... This probably is very successful. So I think it's not just not aimed, you know, we've always said of past series, you know, you've got to remember it's not just aimed at us old and crusty classic Doctor Who fans. Mm. I think this is very much not aimed at Doctor Who fans or sci-fi fans too much at all. And that's why it is getting a bit of a negative vibe from all different spectrum of, of Doctor Who fans. Yeah, it's interesting the kind of people who are united in this uh, dislike for the series. I mean, you can go on YouTube and find all these Americans in particular making videos like, oh my God, the the show is in free fall. It's dropped 500,000 here and a million there. And oh my God, Jodie Whittaker has destroyed Doctor Who. And, you know. (laughs) Yeah, a bit melodramatic. Yeah, and I think, did these people look at the ratings for Capaldi? Like, Capaldi's ratings did exactly the same thing, and he was actually lower in terms of the consolidated. Yes, I know they're counting them in a different way now, and maybe if they'd been counted differently, he'd have a few more viewers uh, uh, alongside Jody. But but on the whole, they're, they're being very disingenuous, I think, with the way they're looking at the series. However... Yeah, this, this, the series has been a rating success. You can't deny that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, however, there's also people out there like Ian Levine who said he wouldn't even watch the series, and clearly he has. He's not too happy with, you know, X, Y, and Z about it. I'm not going to go through his post uh, in any detail. But I look at that, 
And I think, ooh, he's not wrong there and he's not wrong there. He doesn't miss there. So although he does rant and rave and says some pretty crazy stuff about the series, there's a lot where I'm kind of in agreement with him. So it's it's brought together all these disparate people, old fans, new fans. We're all seeing similar stuff, so it must be happening. Whereas the average general person at home who's maybe not a fan does seem to resonate more with this, you know, week-to-week stories, no big arcs you know, maybe not a very brain-taxing kind of show. Uh, so is Ch- Chibnall a genius for doing that, or is it just luck? I don't know. Well, well, I think it shows what a genius Russell T. Davies was, that he could do both the mass audience and the sci-fi Doctor Who fans. Now, admittedly, I remember at the time watching it, you know, talking about it with, with friends, there were episodes and moments where we thought that's a little bit too close to soap opera and a little bit far away from sci-fi and the Russell T. Davies era, but he basically kept everybody in the tent and, and very effectively. So I think that's where Chibnall has fallen down a bit. Rob, can I just pull up and branch off for a moment into one of the things that Ian Levine did m- m- mention in his... um. His, his missive to, to his open letter to fandom. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, he brought up something that a lot of people have said, particularly the you know that that sort of odious hashtag not my doctor crew, mm. uh, which you know they they can go and have their thing. That's fine. I, I don't want to be associated with them. I think it's really quite appalling. But there's been this sort of thing about how Doctor Who's become lefty and politically correct, which I just cannot understand, and I don't see how they can justify that. Was there some moral messaging in this series? Yeah, sure. But what was that? Segregation is not good, kids. Mm. Racism is bad. Gender equality is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Religious um, extremism is not good for you. Like, that's not political correctness. That's just some pretty basic, you know, moral trappings in which to have a series and stuff that Doctor Who has been doing way back into the 1960s. Uh, Look at the Barry Letts era where they talked regularly about ecology and conservation and multinationalism and you know those sort of little homilies from the Doctor. Um, that's what Doctor Who's always done. This isn't extreme political correctness lefty stuff. And I say that as somebody who is not a fan of political correctness and is certainly not a lefty. No. I just thought this was Doctor Who being pretty pretty spot on. Um, I've got another point to make on that, Rob, but would you, would you agree with me there? Oh, look, I, I absolutely agree. And it, it, it kind of worries me where some people's heads are at if they're thinking that it's really out there to say racism is bad or, or whatever. <laughs> it's like, wow, where is your head at? Yeah. And the other thing is, I don't think that this is a deliberate sort of message focus from Chibnall. I mean, there's been a bit of a general vibe about, you know, sometimes mankind is the worst monster and, you know, we all need to like each other. That's not really a stretch when it comes to messaging. And I say that because a lot of the messaging has actually been quite clumsy. Rosa has a very strong anti-segregation vibe, as of course it should. But the way that Crasco is dealt with, as I said in the episode, is kind of very clumsy and, you know, he's basically no platformed and that's just not helpful. Mm. But I don't think that that's what Chibnall was thinking. He just wanted to get his villain out of the episode before they had the scene on the bus. Um, another conversation, Rob, we had with a few of our friends in, in the Australian podcasting world during the week was about some of the messaging or perhaps unfortunate messaging in the Battle of Wherever It Is, <laughs> where you know you have these, these, these two religious people who think their God has fallen to earth and they, they go and worship and follow him and their God's commandments are go and destroy five planets and wipe out billions of people so we can build a weapon to wipe out billions more. Yep. Now... Surely, no matter how devout you are, if your God starts saying, what I want you to do is wipe out billions of people, 
a normal person would say, you know what, maybe you're not the god I should be worshipping. Maybe there's a problem here. <laughs> I don't yeah. think Chibnall. I don't think Chibnall was making a point there. I just think he missed all those sort of points. So I, I don't think there is a, a, a strong, intense message in the series because most of it's too clumsy to do that. Yeah, look, I completely agree with you on that. And when I first had that idea thrown at me, I thought, oh, of course you're right. You know, I didn't pick up on that in, in the hot take at all. But as soon as it was pointed out to me, I thought, oh, of course, that's quite right. Religious extremism, they're being asked to do this. Oh, wow. And look, maybe Chris Chibnall, as you say, didn't pick up on it either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I, I don't see how he could have. No, but there's a very interesting sort of strand about this story, you know. Hmm. Um, can we perhaps move from there, Rob, to a bit more of a general discussion about Chris Chibnall and way, the way he's put together this series? Because the ingredients should work, but they just don't quite seem to. And I'm going to put forward my view, looking back now, that this is a bit of a series put together by a committee. And it's it's that classic example of the horse that's put together by the committee and ending up being a camel. Mm. And I particularly feel that way looking at the Doctor and the TARDIS team. Now, we'll talk a bit more about Jodie in a moment, I'm sure, but I just don't think the TARDIS team all quite worked. And it feels like they've sat there and gone, well, okay, so if we've got a female Doctor, then that means we can't just have another female companion. So, I know, let's do something different and have an older guy. Mm -hmm. um, but we then need an audience identification figure, so we'll have... Um, well, let's have two. Um, we'll make one black and one Muslim. Uh, da, 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 and sort of ticking a number of boxes without really just organically putting together how they felt this crew should work. Uh, the one exception, perhaps, is the Graham-Ryan relation. But how much of that, I wonder, is actually down to the actors rather than the script. But all in all, it just hasn't quite worked for me as a, as a group. Yeah, look, that that's exactly right. This is a TARDIS team that feels like it's maybe one member too many. But, you know, we noted in our episodes that in each story, they did find things for everyone to do. It wasn't a case of, oh, Yaz has got a headache and she's back in the TARDIS. Everyone was still given things to do, but it still didn't work. And, and that was really frustrating because I feel that what Chibnall had plotted here for the series probably looks great on paper it probably looks like an amazing series on paper like let's do some space eps let's do some historicals that we haven't done in this way before uh let's do some episodes on earth i think the balance is there and the tardis team sort of makes sense on paper as you say it's a new kind of doctor it's an old white bloke and a young man of color it's a young woman everything's there but it just hasn't worked and oh god that's frustrating to me dave I partly agree with you, Rob, but I'm going to disagree on a key point, and that is that it could have worked, because I don't think anybody really expected a four-person TARDIS team to work. Every time it's been tried in the past, it hasn't quite worked, particularly in the 1980s. Even the Dr. Jamie, Ben and Polly, there was you know superfluous material, and that only lasted a couple of stories. Back in the Hartnell era, it was there because literally they had to have half the crew on every set so they could change between them and allow people to go on holidays for a week at a time. <laughs> it, it, you know, it didn't work. Now, I, I agree it hasn't had that thing of having a companion back in the TARDIS or locked up or under some floorboards for two episodes and the, the capture thing, but it hasn't allowed us to really develop all of the characters as well as they can be. And there's one that I think particularly fell down, and we'll talk about her in a moment. But the other problem with having a large TARDIS team is that in one episode of Doctor Who, there is only so much of the pie 
in terms of script and story to go around. And if you've got four main characters taking up portions of that pie, there's less for the guest cast to have. So unless you really have somebody like Alan Cumming just come in and just take half the pie for himself and the rest of you can get stuffed, which is fine. <laughs> you know, he's, he's senior enough as an actor to do that. Yeah. Otherwise, you just have not a lot of depth and material and, and meat for the guest characters and the guest cast. And I think that's why a lot of them have felt very flat and very underdeveloped and frankly not very memorable the villains haven't had time to really get out there and become a big part of the story and very memorable no not at all and and i think there'll be more room for them to breathe had there been less of a tardis team yeah i mean this is one of my notes there were villains who just weren't interesting or a real match for the doctor to stand up to them and show that you know she's the doctor and i think the worst was in arachnids where you had mr trump light just shooting the spider and walking off you know see us um and he's off and that was the end what are you kidding me chivers are you seriously kidding me on that yeah absolutely and kraskos from rosa who had a bit of a confrontation with the doctor but there was no real moral come to jesus moment of him really being confronted with what he was doing it was just well i've got to get you out of the story now so um we'll tech the tech and off you go yeah and look i think stemming from these villains not being interesting or a real match there was a distinct lack of threat for our heroes throughout this whole series it it hardly felt like they were ever in peril they felt invincible just sort of you know bouncing through these different landscapes nothing's going to touch them i think once once maybe in it takes you away i sat up and felt the stakes were a bit raised like they were stuck in the in-between zone or whatever the hell it was called and i thought "Ooh, this feels dangerous and it was like one of the only times the whole series it felt dangerous and that's just not good enough i've got some thoughts on that but i'm going to save them for our uh, season chibnall death count okay well then just another quick note on chibnall before we move on probably to, to jody or something I just feel sorry for Chris, to be honest, at the at the end of all of this. I know, well, I think he likes to write dialogue. That's what made Broadchurch so very good. You know, people would sit around in this town and talk about stuff like, oh, my son's been murdered and who did it and where was this person on the night of blah, blah, blah. There's very little action and it works a treat. It's very talky, but it just doesn't work in Doctor Who. And I think one of our complaints episode after episode is that, oh, this is just too talky. There's too much exposition. And I think that's got to be laid at Chibber's feet. He seems to think that if it works in other parts of his career, like Broadchurch, it's going to work in Doctor Who, and it just doesn't. It really doesn't. Yeah, two, two points on that, because I do broadly agree with you. Uh, yes, if this was a different sort of series, that sort of approach could work very well. I'm thinking of something like 13 Reasons Why, where um, the first series of that particularly was all about an incident occurs, and how do the characters deal with that how do the parents deal with that how do the friends deal with that how do they deal with each other and so there's a lot of time for introspection and talking and exploring rather than action that's that sort of a series doctor who is not that sort of a series it, it is in part action-based not not an action adventure in the way that you know a movie starring the rock would be mm-hmm. but but there should be some action and adventure in it uh the second point is yes look i do feel a bit sorry for chris chibnall uh particularly of course because of that famous interview of him in the 1980s, lecturing Pip and Jane Baker about how to write Doctor Who. And yeah, I think that's particularly unfortunate because at the end of this series, I think it could have, you know, I think a couple of episodes could have done with a Tetrap walking around or, or a Vervoid or something, or the Rani. 
Well, wasn't his one of his complaints that, that they were all just about running up and down corridors and something like Saranga Conundrum is running up and down corridors? <laughs> yeah, that is that is very unfortunate. <laughs> um, should, we, should we perhaps dovetail there as well onto the comment that some people have made that this is Doctor Who written for kids, which is a defence I've seen made in a number of corners of fandom. Mm. And I, I really repudiate that because Doctor Who, when written well, yeah, it should be absolutely accessible for kids. You look at the Barry Letts era, very much for the slightly older kids. Um, the Hinchcliffe Holmes, Tom Baker era, where they overtly said, this is for a smart 12-year-old. Mm. And they were smart stories. And as a kid, I still got into them. I maybe didn't appreciate every nuance and subtlety of them, but I still followed them. Invasion of the Dinosaurs is a great example. Part of me was excited by cool dinosaurs. Part of me understood the whole concept of Operation Golden Age and what they were trying to do. And, and that's fine. And as I got older, I appreciated more of what Malcolm Hulk was writing in that. Mm. If this is written for kids, then it's done in the worst possible way. You don't talk down to kids and simplify for kids. You give them real action and adventure and, and, and Daleks and Cybermen and Sontarans and a few lasers and interesting plots. Kids are not stupid. No, not in the slightest. Which, Dave, makes me want to talk a bit about the Doctor because she's in the middle of all of this. And I made a note that this isn't a Doctor who's, you know, stood tall and made the role her own. And this could be in part due to what's happening around her in terms of the stories. If you don't have those great adversaries, you can't show off your stuff. I get that. But it just doesn't change anything if you're not getting those good stories or good adversaries or whatever. And we're not getting these big, exciting episodes. And... Shall we talk about Jodie Whittaker? Yeah, as I've said many times, I came into this completely blind and neutral as to Jodie Whittaker. I hadn't seen her in anything that I remembered in the past. It was a very fresh performance. I can see that she's a competent actress and she's dealt very well with the material. But I haven't felt that she's really had those big, juicy doctor scenes to show us what her character is. And I don't feel I know her character. I think that she hasn't been cast to be a woman. She has been cast because she was the best person for the job in Chibnall's mind. And that's a good thing. It shouldn't be just, okay, go find me a woman. It should be find me the best person. And they found a woman. And that's fine. That's worked actually quite seamlessly. It, it hasn't been on the nose at any point. Maybe one line in the series has been on the nose about her being a female doctor. That's good. Um, they haven't really used it much either. That's okay. But who is Jodie Whittaker? Who is the 13th Doctor? Hmm. If I said to you, describe the 13th Doctor to me, I, I would really struggle to answer that question other than using very generic, bland Doctor language. Yeah, look, I might throw a childlike in there. I might throw in a, you know, caring and kind, but all the Doctors yeah, are caring yeah. and kind. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. It gets very generic very quick. Yeah, and, and that's a shame. There are moments of real power and authority from her. I think her best story probably was The Witchfinders. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of her worst, unfortunately, was the Battle of Wherever, where I just thought she was all over the shop in that and, and failed to land the real dramatic moment. I mean, compared to other Doctors that are you know, facing a, a season big bad, it, it just fell down. I, I'm not writing Jodie off because there has been good stuff, and overall I've enjoyed her, but I hope next season she really gets some real character stuff and I get to see a lot more from her because at the moment she's just there. Yeah, look, for me, Dave, flat out, she's disappointed. And I hate saying that because I wanted to, to really like her, but it's the, it's the truth as I see it, at least. And she's been given some ropey material and lines to work with, I know. 
But here's the thing. I think Matt Smith was given some really dire stuff um, in his era. But I came out of most Smithy stories saying, well, that story was, you know, horrible. But Matt was amazing. And with Jodie, though, it seems she's never really stood up and shone in spite of the material like Smithy used to. And that's really surprised me because she is a good actor. And I thought good actors can do this sort of thing. But it's like she reads the script and thinks, oh, okay, it wants me to do this. And she doesn't stretch herself. She doesn't seem to want to play it any other way. She's just reading what's on the page and and that's it. And it's not coming across well. You know, and I know people don't want to hear this sort of talk because it's the first female doctor and it's a new era and all of that and they're very excited. But I sit here as someone who's more than comfortable with the thought of Jodie as the 13th Doctor on paper, but what she's done on screen to date has just left me cold, unfortunately. Do you think her not being a fan of the series has hindered her in some ways? I hate to say it, but yes. (laughs) Particularly when you compare it to Tennant and Capaldi? Yeah, I hate to say it, but yes, I think they knew what would be good and what would work, whereas she's just kind of throwing stuff out there and just, yeah, as I say, going with what's in the script and not really adding that essence. You know, even Smithy, who wasn't a fan, went back and watched, you know, a lot of old episodes and fell in love with Troughton and tried to bring in a bit of Troughton into his performance and things. And Jodie not deliberately not doing that, I think is maybe to her detriment. Yeah, and I think she's probably think she's in a Harry Potter movie. Well, I did do the Expelliarmos gag a, you an did, episode you or did. two back. And, and that's sort of been, been rattling around my mind as well, that maybe that not knowing Doctor Who, she sort of pitched it there. I, I don't know. That's a very unthought of thought. Look, wonderful quirky moments and nice moments, particularly in Witchfinders, but can do better. Absolutely can do better. Shall we get positive now? Because I want to talk about our two teams for this series, Rob. Mm -hmm. From the very start, you were Team Bradley or Team (laughs) Graham. I was Team Ryan. Let's just say, I think, almost universally, in fact, probably universally, Bradley Walsh has been praised in this series. Yeah, I mean, well, what what can you say? Um, Our peers in the UK made this sound like it was a really dodgy casting choice at the time, in much the same way that they slated, say, Billy Piper. Ah, she's just a pop singer. She's going to be hopeless. Or Catherine Tate. And I look back and I think, wow, what have these three people got in common? They've all become really, really beloved characters in the series. And indeed, indeed Rose Rose and um, Donna still have their detractors. I mean, when it comes to Donna, I'm one of them. I know I'm the minority. That's fine. I don't think I've seen any Bradley Walsh detractors at all. No. So out of the three we're talking about, he, he's streets ahead um, even of two really popular characters. So it's, yeah, it's been really interesting to see. I mean, aside from an ep or two where he seemed a bit sidelined or a bit bored, he's been a real rock for this series. Um, I haven't seen anyone criticize him, Dave. No. The thing that I think has really helped Bradley as well is he's got some of the best lines and the best moments. He gets to be the funny character or the witty character. He gets the human moments, you know, wondering about a sandwich. He's had, let's face it, probably the big emotional moments of this series have been given to Bradley. His conversation with the brother that's about to go out and die in in Punjab. His seeing um, his wife again in, in the one with the frog. Mm. He, he's actually had better material than Jody has. Yeah, you're probably right there, Dave. In fact, I think you are right. And and he, and he has, to his credit, absolutely kicked it out of the park. Uh, the other person I want to really praise is Tosin Cole as uh, Ryan. He hasn't had nearly the universal praise that Bradley Walsh has, but I've been really impressed by this young actor in this series. And what impresses me about him is that 
even when he hasn't been given good material, Tosin is always looking for ways he can improve the show. Reactions he can give, things he can do in the background, uh, little quirky things he can have. Sometimes he's a little bit silly. That I really like. I'm really impressed by him. And and I think he's been a great addition to the TARDIS team. And I'd like to see a lot more of him in the future. Um, and, and particularly the relationship between Graham and Ryan has been the one really successful part of this series. And I cannot praise that relationship enough. Yeah, he seems to be an actor who thinks about his character and thinks about what he's doing and, and what else he can bring to the role. And maybe the way that, that I haven't, really thought that Jody is doing that at all you know um you think of the start of rebel without of cause and james dean you know lying on the ground you know the bit i'm talking about yeah, yeah, yeah. and i think that was just something impromptu that he thought oh i think my character would do this i think he'd just lay down and start doing this and it's that kind of stuff that i think tosin does bring to the role i, I totally get what you're seeing there dave and Look, to talk about the character, I think he started off quite interesting. You know, he had dyspraxia and, you know, would that be a thing? It's a really nice nod to disability. I know we said on the podcast, well, I in particular said, let's not make it a really big thing. Like, Let's not play it up, but it's nice that it's there. Uh, but as time went on, the dyspraxia sort of went out the window. He became a bit more comedic. He's sort of the audience identification figure, but generally a second fiddle to Graham. So in the end... Yeah, not not as great a companion as Graham, but certainly streets ahead of Yaz, who I'm sure we'll talk about next. But I guess that's not saying a whole lot, you know, when Yaz has been a bit lost. But maybe I'm jumping the gun there. No, no, I, I agree. He has been the audience identification figure, and he has been a lot of fun to watch. Uh, and he's also had that wonderful impetuous streak that is typical of young men of his age, and that's been really good to see. Yeah, exactly. And look, I, I just mentioned Yaz, so let's get on to Mandip Gill. I mean, poor Mandip. You know, we're introduced to her at first. She's on the job. She's a police officer, or at least a probationary police officer. She's solving a problem with her brain. You know, it's, it's a bit funny. There's no fisticuffs involved. She's, she's clever. And then she meets up with Ryan. There seems to be some potential here. They know each other. But I guess with Bradley and Tosin paired up for, for obvious reasons, Mandip then generally got paired up with the Doctor, who'd be just spouting exposition nonstop, or maybe with a guest cast member, and always felt just a bit sidelined away from the rest of the team. And and of the three companions, it's no big reveal to say that she was the least used, the least interesting, and sadly, she won't be going down in history as a great Doctor Who companion, period, I don't think. No, I don't think so either. Sadly, far, far too often, she was given the straight person role of what's that doctor? Oh, who are you? What are you doing? That sort of thing. And, and just sort of giving us bits of, bit of exposition. She gets paired up with Lee Mack in um, Kablam, and she's the one who basically just gives Lee Mack someone to exposit to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's unfortunate. And the other thing is, look, Mandip Gill is a perfectly good actress, and when given scenes when given lines she has risen to the material perfectly well and i have no problem but unlike tosin cole i don't think that when she has not been given dialogue she's been able to put in that extra layer to her performance maybe i've missed it maybe i'm being unfair but i don't think she has risen even when given poor material in the way that bradley and tosin have yeah completely agree now, there's a couple of uh, more things to chat about before we take off to the sports desk, Dave. The first is the composer for the series, Sagun Akinola. The second is the Chibnall Death Count. Which of those do you want to tackle first? Well, look, you're, you, you've really sort of followed the, the music for this one, Robin. You're quite a fan. So why don't you start on that one? 
All right. Sagunakanola. I think we said almost every episode of our show that the music has been quite good in this series. And good in the sense that it's generally unobtrusive and it sets the mood rather than, you know, being all, ta-da, here's a big tune, folks. You know, da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's a nice change. And I don't think I need a change back to the big tunes anytime soon. I'm really enjoying this. I think it's been quite good, even in episodes where we've been nonplussed with the story or the acting, the music's always been there, doing just what it says on the box. So, you know, Akinola's been a really decent find this series. I, I, I can't fault him, to be honest. Rob, we've got a lot to talk about in this episode. So I'm simply going to say I absolutely agree with you. I've really enjoyed it. And yeah, everything you've said, you could have spoken for me. Oh, lovely. Well, let's move on then to the Chibnall death count. <laughs> It stopped on 19, Dave. I found this quite surprising. Yeah, this is extraordinary because the Chibnall Death Count concept was something we put together after the first episode where five characters were knocked off in in 50 minutes. And in particular, they were knocked off in generally very memorable ways. There was the the, the, the guy that was throwing salad at Tim Tim Shaw and got <laughs> yes. blown away. Um, that really dark and powerful thing where the grandfather got off the phone with his granddaughter and then got killed. Mm. Uh, you know, th- these were actually quite memorable, almost Saywood-esque deaths. And we thought, okay, well, let's see where this goes because after 10 episodes, there could be 50 of these things. Yeah. This could be a bloodbath of a season. <laughs> For the kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... <laughs> And we end with 19, so actually over a quarter of the deaths in this series were in one episode. Yeah, it really wrong-footed us uh, in many ways, that first episode, I think. And I think that does go some way towards explaining why we found this a slightly dull series, because death in Doctor Who, and indeed in any drama, does raise the stakes. And you look at where there have been deaths in this series, they do tend to have been in better episodes and have raised the stakes at the right moment. I think of something like Kablam, where the young girl was uh, killed by the uh, test... Uh, what was it? The test bubble wrap. Yeah. And and that was a very dramatic and quite harsh moment where, where we've got to know this character, we've grown to like her, we know a bit about who she is as a person, and suddenly she's killed in a quite violent way, and the stakes have been raised. Uh, the same in something like... Uh, Demons of the Punjab again where the deaths are foreshadowed and there is tension there I contrast that to the Battle of War wherever the hell it is mm. where there actually wasn't that and if you could imagine that episode where we'd met a character at the very start we got to know them over 40 minutes and over 40 minutes you can really get to know a guest character learn to like them yeah. and then they get killed 10 minutes before the end and suddenly it seems a whole lot more powerful for us. I'm thinking of Linda with a Y from uh, Series 1, whose death still sticks with us and absolutely raised the stakes. Yeah, look, I completely agree there, Dave. Um, unfortunately, though, even when there were these deaths raising the stakes, it still wasn't raising that level of threat against the uh, the Doctor and Companions, unfortunately. I mean, I think of Kablam, and Lee Mack's death did show us that, oh, there is something quite nasty happening here. But that came, and, uh, and you raised this on our episode, uh, the way Yaz goes, oh, there's something dangerous down there, you're going to go in my stead? Okay, off you go then. <laughs> um, and he went off and got killed. 
whereas she should have gone with him, etc., etc. Yeah, but but even so, that was another death in that episode that again escalated the tension. So you meet Lee Mack, he gets killed, tension raised. You meet the young young girl, sorry, her name escapes me, she gets killed, tension raised. Yeah. And I don't think it's coincidence, this was one of the more exciting episodes of the season. No, it certainly does raise the tension and it certainly does help. I know there are people out there who don't like uh, when, you know, a lot of characters get bumped off. They uh, they get a bit upset by it. But I do think it's part of drama and I do think there could have been a little bit more of it in this series. Yes, yeah, so it has been interesting following this Chibnall death count and we'll remember that nineteen number and see how it compares when we're back in 18 months doing series uh, 12. Mm, we will indeed. Shall we go to the sports desk? Let's go. So for the final time in 2018, we are at the Sports Desk. This is where we talk about uh, the awards we're giving out for an episode. But on this case, we are going to be talking out our player of the season, our play of the season, and our foul of the season. So Mm. Rob, do you want to kick us off with your player of this season, of season 11? Oh, Dave, this is the big one, isn't it? And for me, I don't know if I'm going to get a snap here, it's Bradley Walsh as Graham. Whilst you haven't got a snap, I am not at all shocked that that's the case. (laughs) I mean, listeners, even if you've never heard me talk on this show before, um, but have just been listening to other Doctor Who podcasts, perhaps, or looking on social media, this would still be no surprise because pretty much everyone out there says the same thing. We were talking about this earlier. He was just great. He was funny. He was warm. He was real. He's the anchor that the TARDIS team relied on literally and figuratively, episode after episode. I called him the Ian of the TARDIS team uh, in an earlier episode of this show. I stand by that. At times, Bradley Walsh has been the only real high point in the episodes. So to me, this was a no-brainer of an award. Yeah, I, I'm not shocked. I came very close to giving my award to Bradley Walsh as well, but I am going to give it to Tosin Cole as Ryan. Ah, okay. The reason being, I, I, I genuinely was tossing up between those two actors slash characters, and whilst I thought Bradley Walsh did a lot with you know very easy material, he was regularly had the ball passed to him and he, he kicked goals, absolutely. I thought Tosin Cole did a very good job with a more difficult role, and with a harder task, mm-hmm. and that's why I wanted to recognise him, and I'm very comfortable doing that. I think the two of them have been the highlight. What we need to say, of course, Rob, is I was tossing up there between two characters for the player of the series. Mm. Neither of them was the Doctor, and yours wasn't either. No, Jody didn't figure into my calculations at all, I'm afraid, Dave. Yeah, that's very, very disappointing. Yeah, look, and in the weekly shows, I've even given a, the uh, the MVP of the week at times, um, and in particularly in that last one, it was more of an encouragement award than anything else. So, look, she's been trying, she's done some interesting things at times, but when it came to the entire series looking back, she just didn't factor at all. And for the Doctor to not figure as the most important person in their, in their series, ah, uh, yeah, we've got some problems there, I think. We do, but very, very high praise for... Tosin and uh, Bradley massively massively so which leaves us Dave with the play of the series and the foul of the series you've got the lead here so I'll let you pick which one you want to do look let's do the foul and then finish off on a positive okay 
my foul of the series is the battle of wherever it was that I can't remember. <laughs> You're really down on this one. <laughs> I, I really am. This, to me, had a chance to bring home the series in a solid way, but actually ended up taking all the things that annoyed me from all the other parts of the series. Long walk, walking along, in the middle of nowhere, doing not a lot. Long exposition scenes, Jody not playing it strongly enough. Lots of just talking about what we're going to do rather than doing it. A, a less than interesting or exciting or threatening villain. It sort of cherry-picked all the things that had annoyed me and put them all into one big place, made it unintelligible, and I just thought it was such a shame. I was really ready to say that the second half of the series was really good. It was a strong second half. That meant that a slim majority of the episodes of the series were really good. This was the one that just made me go, nah, the good episodes were aberrations and standouts. And, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I really am down on the battle of what's my call it. Mm. And what happened at the end of the series, Dave? Chris Chibnall came back. The episodes before it that you really liked weren't Chris Chibnall episodes. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm trying to avoid being that, that blunt, but yeah, that is, that, that is true. And, and look, maybe, maybe when we see the New Year's Day ep, that will actually be the real finish to the series, and I'll, I'll be more excusable of, of this one. But no, I, I am down, and I'm giving up my foul. Okay. Well, look, my foul, and this won't be any surprise given what I just said a moment ago, my foul of the series is Chris Chibnall. I remain absolutely gobsmacked, Dave, that a guy who has loved Doctor Who all his life was finally given the show. He had extra long to prepare for it. He asked for extra time. He said, I'm, I'm not going to do that Christmas special, Moffat. You, you come back and write that, and I want extra time, and I want this, and I want that. Everything was given to him on a silver platter. And yet things like arachnids in the UK are his opening shots in this in this war. Um, that's gobsmacking. Maybe if we were three or four series into the Chibnall era and he tossed off a, a, an arachnids, you'd cut him some slack. You'd say, oh, poor guy, he's overworked. Arachnids was the best he could do. Ah, oh, well. But no, this is one of his opening stories, Dave. This is decades of fandom come out to play. This is Chibbers able to say and do whatever he likes, and he does that. That's that's crazy. No, no, that's not crazy. That's beyond crazy. That That's gobsmacking to me. If I could change one thing from this series, it would be to go back to Chris Chibnall just before they start filming on day one and say, look at all of your scripts and Anytime when there's an exposition scene, take out the red pen and just cross them out. Well, at least half of it. <laughs> well, yeah. No, no, just cross it down and let, 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 the, let the action show what's going on. I, I, I don't disagree with you. I do want to stress, though, to me, this is not so much a case of really bad writing as a case of a lot of near missing. All the ingredients are there. Mm. It's, it's got a lot of go things going for it in this series, and some of the episodes have worked well. But you're right, it hasn't quite come off together. I think that with a bit of time and a bit of feedback, this could end up being really good. I hope that's the case for the next series they do. Yeah, I wonder if he sits at home and watches this and and sees this. I, I wonder if he thinks, yes, all my ideas just didn't quite come off this time. I'm going to go give it a really hot, red-hot go next time around. Or whether yeah. he just thinks he's created genius. I, I, I don't know. Or, or, or whether he... You know, looks at the few thousand Doctor Who fans going, could be better, and then looks at the six, seven, eight, nine, ten million people watching and says, to hell with them. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Anyway, Dave, that brings us to the play of the series. And I'm going to go first here and say, 
I think the play of the series was that they did something different this time around. And this applies in multiple areas. You know, just think, you know, there's a female doctor. There's episodes that generally didn't link up. I think only episodes one and two really linked up. Um, There were no big arcs going on, no big returning monsters. This was Doctor Who designed for, you know, younger folk to learn about history and for just people tuning in week to week who didn't need to know what had happened two weeks ago with River Song or something, you know. And given what it was coming off the back of the Moffat era, this was going to be a different and necessary thing to be doing. So hats off to Chibnall for for recognising that and making it happen. As I've said earlier here, though, in execution, there was no genius episode, not even a hint of one. And as you've just been saying a moment ago, the ingredients didn't quite add up. So it, it hasn't quite come off. But I do think the ideas behind this series have been sound, in theory at least. And for me, that's the play of the series, that I think they plotted this out pretty well, even if it didn't come off. No, I like that. I like that. There is stuff to praise in this series. We we have been very critical and pulled out the, 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 the negatives of it, but there have been good things. And what I'm going to praise as my play of the series is the effectiveness of bringing back those historicals. Of my four favourite episodes of this series, three of them were the historicals. I thought they were all great. They were all done well. They all sparked my my love of history and got me engaged. I liked the way they were done respectfully. There, there was so much good stuff in there. And if nothing else comes of this series, then some young kids, boys, girls, go along to Wikipedia or Google and start looking up James mm. the First, the Witchfinders, Rosa and Segregation, uh, the history of India and, 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 and the British Empire and Partition, in the same way that many of us fans went and looked up the Reign of Terror or Marco Polo or yeah. the Crusades. Maybe we didn't look up Orchids from the Amazon, but, you know, <laughs> if, 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 if some young kids are inspired to go and learn a bit of history and maybe even really learn to study history out of the back of this series, that's a really good thing in Doctor Who at its best. I'm full of praise for that. Fantastic. Well, look, a number of uh, listeners have written in over past weeks with emails and things, and we haven't included those on our weekly shows because they're just too long. Uh, And what we're going to do now is read out a bunch of these. So this will probably take a little while to get through, Dave, but I think it's worthwhile to hear what our listeners have been thinking in detail too, just like we've done our detailed thoughts in this episode. Yeah, I've been really impressed and excited by how many people, and often different people, have taken the chance to uh, get involved and, 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 and be part of these podcasts and give us feedback. So, yeah, we are going to take the time now to, to read those longer form ones that didn't quite fit in a hot take, but, but are definitely uh, worth hearing from. All right, I'm going to kick off with one from Daniel Watts. Hello, Daniel. He says, Hi, Robin Dave. I have been listening to a few Doctor Who podcasts during my rewatch of Modern Who earlier this year in preparation for Series 11. I came across your show when searching for reactions to The Woman Who Fell to Earth. After hearing your thoughts on the premiere, I decided to check out your other content. You are both very easy to listen to, and your good humour and love for the show is evident. That's lovely. Thank you. (laughs) I've made my way through many of your monthly episodes, mostly ones that focus on the modern series, and always look forward to my lunch break when I go for a walk and plug you guys in. Your conversations always make the cold, wet British weather bearable, just about. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that nice, Dave? Someone on the other side of the planet walking around in a park listening to us. (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, I have watched a selection of Hartnell, Troughton and Pertwee stories, and although I don't always have a frame of reference for your discussions, exclaiming, I understood that reference to myself whenever I do, your excitement and almost encyclopedic knowledge of the classic era always makes it worth a listen. I've considered sending an email for a while, but decided to put virtual pen to paper after your hot take review of The Witchfinders. One of your faves, Dave. Yeah. Um, Rob, and a couple of your listeners mentioned how this episode felt like it should have aired earlier in the series. I've been keeping up with production of this series, and it's my understanding that the original order had been shifted. Along with Demons of the Punjab being brought forward and It Takes You Away being pushed back, The Witchfinders was also moved. What is assumed to be due to editing issues, the episode is only around 46 minutes long, this was planned to be either episode 4 or 6 originally. This is consistent with a few things I noticed when watching, such as the Doctor mentioning not to interfere in the past, only two episodes after doing just that. There's also the running thread from the first few episodes with the Doctor ending up in some places she wasn't planning on going before they eventually arrive back in Arachnids in the UK. Note Graham's reference to Yaz, we must be close to home. Also, as episode four of the series, it would have aired around Halloween. And what's more Halloween-y than witches? Spiders, I guess. Um, (laughs) Some of these points may be circumstantial, but I don't think it's a coincidence considering the general early series feel this episode gave off. Just thought it was an interesting discussion point and speaks both to the positives and negatives of having a mostly standalone series with minimal continuity. Keep up the good work, guys. It's always a pleasure seeing this show pop up in my podcast feed. All the best from Daniel. Oh, thank you, Daniel. That is stuff I did not know. And, yeah, very interesting to to hear that. And that does actually make a bit of sense. In fact, it makes a lot of sense. Well, indeed. I mean, in some episodes, I'd mentioned that It Takes You Away had been recorded in the first shooting block alongside um, The Woman Who Fell to Earth. I I didn't realise, though, that it might have been intended to have been shown a lot earlier in the run. And gosh, if It Takes You Away had been in the first few episodes, what might have been? This this whole season might have felt a bit different. Yeah, I, th- I think it would have, particularly if it had broken up uh, a couple of those uh, weaker ones. Mm, agree. We have a letter from regular correspondent Mike Solko. Hello, Mike. He says, Dear Dave and Rob, I have come to confess my sins. Ooh. Early in series 11, I voiced the opinion that a series of decent to good episodes without a heavy arc would be a refreshing change of pace. I was wrong. Mm-hmm. As the season draws to a close, it turns out I was entertained by every episode sans Saranga and Arachnids. The other eight stories were all enjoyable enough when viewed in isolation. As a collective whole, they are tremendously disappointing. Chibnall and team created three new companions who had the potential to be more human and real than anything we've seen for five or more years. Instead, we had characters who barely evolved from the second or third story. Aside from Graham facing off with Tim Shaw, was there any moment this season where the companions had to make a significant choice? This is most evident with the character of Yaz. We all seem ready to love her, but the scripts generally had her showing as little character as Nyssa, just happy to be along for the ride. It's a discredit to the character and the actress. I'm still a New Adventures edgelord, which, Rob, you have the definition there of that for, for those of us not from the continental America. <laughs> yes, Dave, an edgelord, particularly for our American friends, is modern slang describing a brash provocateur on social media. Okay, I did not encounter that one. <laughs> so Mike goes on. I'm still a New Adventures edgelord at heart, so it's safe to say this series was a bit too safe for me. 
where was the consequences of anything? There is a tremendous character arc in plain sight that could have led to tension among the companions and the Doctor. The Doctor's willingness to let Tim Shaw live had consequences far beyond Grace's death. Does no one look at the wreckage strewn across Ranscor of Colos and wonder, are we responsible for this? I'm not saying they are, and I'm not saying the Doctor should kill baddies, but it would have been a very human take for at least one character to have. The Doctor strapped a pair of explosives to a bloody planet in the finale, <laughs> and we didn't get much more than a funny expression. These are things that could and should have weight and instead got breathed past. And Dave, she also gave Graham and Ryan uh, laser rifles and some grenades and said, you know, he have, have at it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a bit and, weird. And, and, and even lampshaded it. was very odd. Yeah, yeah. Good, good pick up there, Mike. I'm still thankful for episodes like Demons of the Punjab, The Witchfinders, and It Takes You Away. The first two stories were enjoyable enough for a series finding its footing. While Rosa had some excellent moments, I fear the Back to the Future 2 shenanigans aren't going to hold up over time. The rest of the series is entirely disposable, and that's too bad. Here's hoping we get a series 12 with character growth, story depth, and a doctor faced with real dilemmas. Thanks, Mike. Really great email, Mike. And and interesting to see that, you know, Mike says, look, in isolation, eight of these episodes, yeah, they're fine. But when you try and think about it as a series, mm, not so good. I think that's a really interesting point to make. Yeah, I, I like that point. Okay, moving along, David Clark, another regular uh, correspondent with us uh, on our hot takes. Hiya, Robin Dave, just watched episode nine, and we are nearing the end of the series, and I would say that overall, it's been a seven out of ten. I've enjoyed Jody as the Doctor, and I've been Team Graham since episode one. He has just got better and better. That, that seven out of ten is just off our 6.5, Rob. It is. It is. So, yeah, Dave, uh, David Clark, I think you're on uh, You're on track with us there. Uh, the writing has been definitely better when it hasn't been Chris Chibbers, which is weird when you think Broadchurch was brilliant. Yeah, exactly, uh, Dave. Um, I think maybe it's trying to get the balance right when it's an audience from kids to the old fogies when Broadchurch is just for adults. The look of the show has really excelled. Just no more dodgy frogs, please. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, Series 12, I think, should be different stories each week again, but also a story running through. I think we may be in need of a proper Dalek story or classic Cybermen. What I'm trying to say is get the kids back behind the sofa. Anyway, it's not a lost cause. We just need some proper evil baddies and a threat and the Doctor kicking ass. Uh, Ass? Ass. I'm going to say ass. Uh, Cheers, guys. Great show. Have a good Christmas. Look, thank you for that email, and yes, it's another person who's, you know, didn't think the series was as good as it could be, but can see the potential, and we're not sitting here kicking this thing. I think a lot of us are saying there was some good stuff, it just should have been better. Yeah, and it's only a few tweaks here and there. It's like that guy, Dave, on YouTube who has re-edited The Last Jedi, and he's worked with all the footage that everyone hates about The Last Jedi, but he's actually cut a lot of the scenes. Ivan Ortega, that's his name, Ivan Ortega, has cut a lot of scenes into stuff that just works beautifully, and you think, look, that content was there all along, but you just trim this and you trim that, and my God, it's so much better. It's amazing. Go go and watch Ivan Ortega, people, if you've not seen him. He is a genius. I'll have to have a look because I actually really quite like The Last Jedi, so I'll be interested mm. to see if I think it's an improvement. Okay. We have an email here from Peter Dedman. Hi, guys. Great show as always. What can I say about Series 11 is that it was neither as good or as bad as the opposite side of the spectrum made out it would be and is. On paper, it was a fine experiment. 
a soft reboot with a female lead, an approachable team in the TARDIS with a new showrunner and some different directors and writers. In reality, though, it's been merely <laughs> mediocre. Mm. There has not been a brilliant episode I've loved or one which has shocked or astounded me. There is no episode I'd point to as a classic I'd want to rewatch. But there's also no episode which utterly annoyed, frustrated or irritated me. All of Moffat's seasons had episodes I absolutely hated for their contrivances, the too clever circular plot arcs and the smug references. This season had nothing which fundamentally annoyed me, like Kill the Moon or Let's Kill Hitler, an episode which made me stop watching Doctor Who for a season. Wow. It's just been in the middle, neither bad nor good. I actually stopped watching for half a season with Let's Kill Hitler as well, so I'm very in sync with this email so far, I've got to say. Interesting, yeah, okay. He goes on. That's a problem since a fresh start and new blood should have taken risks, should have been brilliant. To be merely okay doesn't bode well for this grand experiment. For the cast, I think the Doctor was fine. I didn't like the idea of a female Doctor. This need to gender swap characters to spice them up has rarely worked well. However, I was willing to give it a go, and she's not terrible, but she's not great either. I think she lacks a clear persona and true presence on screen. She'd certainly be in the lower half of all the Doctors. Yaz, why was she in this series? We kept waiting for her to do something, and the writers kept giving her nothing to do. Mm. The actress is likeable, but she felt the fourth wheel in the team. You've got the female perspective with the Doctor, and she's ended up doing almost nothing of note. Echoing what we were saying before there, Rob. Yeah. Ryan has been very good through the series. He gave a good perspective on things, and his chemistry with Graham has been spot on. Very happy with him. Mm -hmm. Speaking of Graham, he's been my most valued player of the series. Yay! <laughs> Not only has he often got the best lines, but I feel he's the best actor of the four regulars. I don't know Bradley Walsh from much, but I really liked him in Law and Order UK. He played a sympathetic, experienced police officer there, very similar to Graham, but different enough that you don't think they're the same person. And what's next for the show? Over a year without a series is a sure way to be forgotten. The amusing, disingenuous comment from the BBC that because there was a New Year's Day story, 2019 wouldn't be completely without Doctor Who, just <laughs> underlines that the showrunners knew they have to explain why it takes them 18 months to do 10 episodes. Sure, it's a complex show, but there's been other shows like Game of Thrones or the DC Marvel ones which have put out seasons yearly. By 2020, will anyone come back except the diehard fans? Maybe. And then if Jodie regenerates... Do they keep going with another woman or switch back to a man? They're going to cop flack whichever they do, probably so better to cast on talent rather than demographics. Mm. This has turned into quite an essay, so feel free to cut it down as all manageable <laughs> for the show. No, no, you've, it's all gone in, Peter. Yeah. Uh, keep up the good work, guys, from Peter. So, look, thank you for that. Um, I agree with a lot of what he's saying. Yeah, and look, we've spoken about making 10 episodes a year and how it's not actually hard. Chibnall signed up to this job. Chibnall asked for extra time to get the series in gear. Once those stories were written and in production, he should have been thinking about his next bunch of 10. They should be lined up. They should be recording them by now and, you know, ready to be churned out in the second half of next year. Uh, the fact that that's not happening and he, he just needs more time. No, that's ridiculous. 
I, I find this, unless it's actually the BBC in the background saying, look, there's just not the money, we've got to sort of have these gap years very regularly now, I think it's just ridiculous. Russell T. Davis popped out all those seasons of 13 episodes a year like Clockwork to begin with. Everyone thought that was fine, but now that Chibbers can't do it, you have these apologists out there saying, oh, give him a break, it's 10 episodes, it's really tough, and it's like, oh, <laughs> what? Are you kidding me? Yeah, I have some thoughts on this, but I'm going to save them for the new segment of our next monthly uh, monthly podcast. Okie dokie. We now have an epic email, Dave, from Shane Rofe. I may need to uh, have a toilet break during this one or <laughs> go and have a beer or something. Uh, Shane, thank you for your email. There is a lot in here and it's worth reading, but gosh, it's long. Hello again, and a very Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you both and your listeners and subscribers. To Rob and Stephen, uh, Steve, of course, Dave uh, hosted one of our monthly shows and a hot take in recent times. Yes. Uh, thank you for your last monthly show and a huge appreciation for, again, not only reading my emails, but also pronouncing my surname correctly. So many people get it wrong, but you guys say it right every time. Oh, well, we're here to please, Shane. <laughs> um, now, series, what is it? 11 and a half, if you include Tenant Specials as a season, or season 38, I think, if you're counting from the classics, or year 55, if you're simply going on longevity. For my take on the year that was, for Doctor Who on TV, I'm going to be wearing two hats. The first is my casual viewer hat, and the second is my Doctor Who fan hat. Firstly, casual viewer. I watch the series each week twice over. I have ever since its return. You see, when the Doctor returned to TV, I met the woman who became my wife. I even sort of dressed as Tenant's Doctor for the wedding, <laughs> except wow. for the sneakers and long coat. <laughs> it was so hard to get a brown with blue pinstripe suit in Australia. Oh, that's pretty cool, Shane. Even though she grew up with a Trekkie dad and enjoys Doctor Who, I've never converted her to full fandom. We're not the couple that goes to conventions in full cosplay together, despite Despite my nerdism, she has always remained a casual viewer. Thus, I watch the show for me, the fan, so that when I watch it with her, I can help explain some of the plots and continuity references. This was particularly important during the latter half of RTD's run and almost entirely for Moffat's run. My wife's favourite Doctor in all that time has been Christopher Eccleston, though recently this has been challenged by Peter Capaldi and now Jodie Whittaker. Interesting. I want to hear more. Yeah. The reason why she has enjoyed the latter is that she has found the stories remarkably easy to follow, much like Series 1 was back in 05. The stories have been generally standalone adventures with minimal timey-wimey stuff and complicated references to classic Who. And that is my biggest tick for this year, a return to simple Doctor Who where each week we go on an adventure through time and space with our favourite Time Lord and maybe learn something along the way. Enjoyable, relaxing and fun. For that aspect alone, I will give this series an unqualified pass mark. Well done Chibbers and the new production cast and crew. Now, slipping on my fan hat. <laughs> I think I know where this is going, Dave. I wouldn't say this series was a train wreck, but it was seriously underwhelming. I think a new season with a brand new Doctor needs to hit you hard and grip you from the start. I got that with nearly every other Doctor. John Pertwee's first season blew you away. Even Colin Baker's first dig made an impact because it was so shockingly different at the time. Let's not go on about the entire run, but dot dot dot. Um, the absolute template for how to introduce a new Doctor has to go to Tom Baker, though. Apart from Robot, it was a stellar season. Oh, you probably disagree there, Dave. I think you like Robot. I really do like Robot, but that's okay. I know the point he's making. 
Yeah. At times, I could almost see that this year too, but not how it should be. Production-wise, this season was superb. Like season 12, the visual look, the sets, the scope of series 11 was astounding. But story-wise, oh dear. I really, really liked each story, apart from Arachnids. And yes, that includes Susandra Conundrum, question mark. Uh, that's Sunungra Conundrum. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one to remember some of these titles. And the finale too. But none of them I would consider to be classics. There was no Genesis of the Daleks or Earthshock amongst them. But thankfully, there were no Twin Dilemmas either. <laughs> or for New Who, uh, no Dalek or Blink, but no Love and Monsters either. I'm sorry... But I have to blame Chibnall. I had such high hopes after watching all of Broadchurch, but he didn't quite land it. Before that, the only one of his stories I liked was 42, so I had been nervous going into this season. I think, as showrunner, he needs to step back and be the producer. I loved many of John Nathan Turner's concepts, but I'm happy he never penned a story. Just because you're showrunner doesn't mean you have to be the head writer, surely. I did really like his overall view of the series and the direction he wants and wanted to take it, but his stories are just a tad weak, to put it politely. And yeah, I think that dovetails with a lot of what I've been saying at least, Dave. Yeah, I think it does too. Now the TARDIS crew, and I'm talking companions here, not the Doctor, from best to worst. Number one, well, I was Team Graham from episode one, and it didn't change throughout. Bradley Walsh was brilliant and almost a scene stealer. I'm glad he and the Doctor didn't pair up too much, as I feel it would have given the haters vindication to say he should have been the Doctor and not Jodie. His arc was great, his acting was spot on, and he was grounded and believable 10 out of 10. I didn't go much for Ryan at the start, but that was mainly due to some preconceptions I had of Tosin before the series kicked off. In some interviews, I had seen he appeared too aloof or disinterested, but as the series went on, I warmed to Ryan a lot. Like Graham, his arc made sense and was well done, his character was fleshed out and rounded, and he was superbly acted. Ryan gave me so many laughs, but like Graham, so many relatable moments of reality. Very good. Sadly, someone has to be last, and, well, it has to be Yaz, through no fault of her own. I think Yaz is brilliantly portrayed, and I've enjoyed so many aspects of her character. I do feel like we know so much about her without actually knowing her, and I put this down to the loss of three episodes this season. Sure, each story may have been longer, but in the urgency of setting up a plot, having guest cast, resolving a story, and moving on to the next adventure, I think we have one too many companions crammed inside the TARDIS. With both Ryan and Graham having an arc that needed fulfilling, I found more focus had to be put on them, and Yaz would too often be put out to pasture when we had a big supporting cast to cater for. Maybe some two-parters would have alleviated this congestion. Again, this comes back to Chibnall. Why want three companions if you didn't have a plan for each of them to be explored in depth? Exactly. Bang. Spot on. Mm. As for the Doctor, well, yep. I'm happy with her. She captured me in episode one, and I've enjoyed her all the way through. Look, the Doctor's the Doctor. Male or female is irrelevant. However, this may be also what has detracted from her a tad as well. I wrote in one of my other emails to you guys that I had heard it rumoured that the season was written for the Doctor before the gender was revealed. That, to me, explains why so many people seem to compare her with other Doctors. Personally, I like to think these lapses into traits of other incarnations show that all these personalities live inside the Doctor and sometimes bubble to the surface. But I have a feeling that's not the case and it's simply that this is my Doctor as pictured being played by David Tennant, but is instead being played by Jodie Whittaker coming through. 
Which brings me neatly to my wrapping up of my wrap up. I'm confident season two of this Doctor will be better. Now that we, the viewers, and hopefully the writers have a better understanding of this Doctor, we will see her flourish into a more well-rounded character. Now that the first female ever hype has died down, we can just settle into what is typically the middle period of a Doctor's run. If Chibbers could just step back and run the show, leaving his writers to flesh out the stories, and I know he won't, then next year could be awesome. I'm sure we've all heard the rumours that both he and Jodie are thinking of leaving already. Well, I say I have no problem with a showrunner going after only a couple of years, but a Doctor has to do a minimum of three. Apologies to Paul, Colin and Chris. Oh, and one final point. My player of the series, The Composer, is by far the one undoubted consistent positive for the show this year. Overall, I would give Series 11 a pass, but can do much better. Cheers from Shane. Well, thank you, Shane. A lot said there, and I think a lot of stuff that actually we agree with, Rob. Yeah, look, uh, he doesn't miss, and I, I think it does dovetail with a lot we've said in this episode and the past 10 episodes. Agreed. And our final email is a shorter one. This is from Ben PM. Thank you for writing in, Ben. Howdy. I've enjoyed your takes on the 13th Doctor, but I definitely think I've had more enjoyment out of this season than you two gentlemen. Firstly, this is the strongest TARDIS team we've had in a long time. I love Bill Potts, but she was one character. I loved Amy Pond and Rory, but some of their plot lines were a bit mental. Graham, Ryan, and even the underutilised Yaz are characters that I buy into very easily. The way they gel reminds me of a classic Who more than any of the new Who teams, and that is a good thing. They aren't too twee or cocky, and for the most part they feel like real people, which is an achievement in this context. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It really is compared to a lot of new series companions. Mm. Uh, He goes on. Secondly, the whole season has looked incredible. I recently purchased the 50th anniversary box set, which, while looking pretty, is a kind of nonsensical collection, but I digress. Jumping back into Moffat Who after watching Chibnall's was jarring. The editing and the feel of New Who can be quite strange and oddly specific. At the time it came out, I didn't really care about it, but in hindsight, New Who has always had a bit of a look and a feel that was very different to most other television. I think Chibnall's production has looked like popular film, or at the very least an attractive, regular, biggest budget television show, and it's the best Who has looked since the New Who era began. I would agree with that. We've praised many times the the look of this, haven't we, Rob? Yeah, especially when they're on location in South Africa for two quite different looks, uh, one in Rosa, which was urban, and one in uh, Ghost Monument, which, of course, was out in, like, desert sort of landscapes, and that just looked amazing. Uh, Punjab's still the best visually for me. I really like that. Oh, the fields of poppies, yeah. Lastly, I'm on board with Whitaker. I love the ultra-lefty speeches about morality. I love her jokes, even when they're cringy, and I hope we get more than two seasons from her. I very much agree that it'd be great to see her work with another showrunner, but I'm not as anti-Chibnall as you lads. I think he's achieved quite a lot and brought a fresh style of realism to our favourite show. As much realism as you can for Doctor Who anyway. Cheers, fellas. Hope you have a nice Christmas break, and I wish you all the best for the new year. Thank you, Ben, for writing in. That's some good thoughts, and yeah, good to hear somebody who's particularly positive about it all. Oh, absolutely. And look, I I just want to pull him up on us being anti-Chibnall. Absolutely, I've criticised Chibnall here. I've criticised him for not being able to to knock off 10 episodes a year. I've criticised him for his, you know, he he just can't seem to write Doctor Who very well because he puts too much talking and exposition into it. Yeah, I've I've, I've criticised him for those things too. But I've also said a lot of, 
you know, encouraging stuff about him as well. And I think he's had great ideas for the series. Shane picked up on this as well, that his vision for the series, I think, is probably spot on. And the ingredients he's tossed into the pot are very good. You know, the, these this is praise for Chibnall if it's not coming across. Let me say it very clearly. It just hasn't sort of worked for, for me, for us. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say I am anti-Chibnall. I'm not sure you'd feel that way either, Dave. Uh, no, no, I'm not. No, um, I, I do understand how it might come across that way, though, when I'm, you know, laying in the boot to different things he's done. But I wouldn't even see myself as being anti-Chibnall. I, I think he's got it all to play for in the next season. He might he might pull it out of the fire. Who knows? Yeah, I, I actually suspect he probably will. Yeah, yeah. Well, we live in hope. And, we, and look, we're going to see on New Year's Day him doing something different, possibly with an old enemy and, and things. But uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself there. <laughs> yes, possibly, possibly. Which brings us to, we will, of course, be back to talk about the New Year's Day episode, which we'll be doing as part of our next monthly episode, Rob. Yes, come and hear us talk about resolution, as it's called, or maybe it's going to be called resolution of the... <clears throat> maybe that's its full title. Um, yeah, we'll be back on January 2nd. Uh, normally, our episodes, monthly episodes, that is, drop on the final Sunday of the month, which is December 30, but we're holding it over so we can talk all about the, uh, the New Year's Day special. Damn you, Chibnall, if you'd done it on Christmas, we could be talking about it on December 30. <laughs> no, look, that that's fine. So we will be out a week later and we'll have our regular mini topics. Our main topic will, of course, be the review of that episode. And we've got a lot of news we need to talk about, I think, Rob. Oh, there's been all sorts of stuff happening. And uh, yeah, look, I, I won't get into that now, obviously. But yeah, we've, we've got a lot to talk about yet. It's been a fun 10 weeks talking New Who and, and Series 11. But there's a there's a bigger Doctor Who universe out there to be getting back into, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking forward to that. Before we go, I just want, want to make a couple of plugs. I have had the privilege of guesting on the 42 to Doomsday podcast annual Christmas special, which I really enjoyed doing. And look, we had some serious discussions and some fun discussions. We talked about <laughs> everything from Terry Nation through to the 40 to the Doomsday Fan Wank of the Year Awards. And so uh, keep an eye out for that. It'll be out probably a week or so after this episode is. They're a lot of fun, those episodes, those Christmas ones with the 42 boys. Yeah, I, I, I enjoy doing them. The Blake 7 podcast that I do with my friend Richard, Spacefall, is continuing. We're into season two of Blake 7 now. And with the Goodies DVD box set now out, uh, look, if you haven't had a chance to go back and listen to the Goodies Pirate podcast, please do if you've got those DVDs. But to celebrate the DVDs, we are recording four commentary tracks, and the first of those will be out fairly soon. So if you were a subscriber to the Goodies Pirate podcast, please make sure you still are, because episodes will be hitting your feed very soon. Or if you're just a fan of the Goodies, go look up the Goodies Pirate podcast on iTunes and uh, see what you think. Brilliant. But, look, we've spoken for long enough. Uh, that's it for Series 11 until New Year's Day 2019. Yes, until then, <laughs> I've been Rob. And I've been Dave. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.